0: Hey guys, welcome to the Fieldcraft Arrival Podcast. I am really, really excited to bring you an educational and entertaining podcast, but you know the drill. Before we get started, we've got to recognize a couple of our sponsors. And I'll tell you something, these sponsors, these advertisers, they make this podcast possible. And the cool thing is, is we get to actually call them friends. So first one I wanna recognize is Sig Sauer. If you guys have been living under a rock, you may not have heard of this incredible firearms company that also happens to have a training company sigsaueracademy.com is the site for the academy sigsauer that's s-i-g-s-a-u-e-r.com is the site for the firearms manufacturing company and the ammo company and the optics company and the range finding company i mean they pretty much do it all let me just start off by saying that sig pistols they're not cheap Uh, you can definitely find yourself an awesome high point and you can be that guy if you want you can carry around a Jennings Raven or one of those throwaway guns if you want, or you can be a professional and you can carry a SIG. And if you want to just carry a SIG, that's cool. But if you really wanna be professional, you can go to the SIG Sauer Academy. Uh, later on, you're gonna hear from our guest and both he and I have been to the SIG Academy and you know, both of us will tell you that it's an incredible place to train. Top, top pro shop there, world-class instructors. You can do everything there from handgun, to carbine, to shotgun, to precision rifle. I mean, many of the times when you talk to like training companies, they either are going to teach you pistol or they're going to teach you pistol and carbine. You're probably not going to find a place where you can train four different disciplines. Uh, oh, and I forgot to mention med. They also have a, a trauma course. And then they've got all these hybrid courses, like bullets on vehicles where you're shooting out of moving cars and at cars and from cars. It's it's pretty damn awesome. So please check out those guys. That is uh, sixhour.com and sixhouracademy.com and if you at some point get your get an opportunity to try out the mcx that rifle is a game changer um i'm that's currently like on my to buy list you know once i make my move to north carolina and i get a whole bunch of bills out of the way i want an mcx badly just because i want the ability to have a folding stock ar-15 that will fire repeated shots uh, as opposed to the current offering that's on the market where you can have a folding stock, you'll get one shot off, but the gun is pretty much a dead gun at that point. So I want an MCX badly. If you guys are listening at SIG and you want to send me a a Christmas present, you know what I'm looking for. All right, guys, second supporter, second company that makes this podcast very possible is Black Rifle Coffee. I am currently drinking Black Rifle Coffee. People always say like, are you really drinking Black Rifle Coffee? There I am like stirring my Black Rifle coffee. Um, I did the Jack Carr add a little bit of honey to my Black Rifle coffee today. So shout out to Jack Carr. Um, I've done Black Rifle coffee with honey. I've done Black Rifle coffee with maple syrup. I've done Black Rifle coffee black. It's all good. Uh, Please check out those guys. Uh, Back in November of 2020, that was the first time I got a chance to actually meet Evan from Black Rifle coffee. He made me one of the strongest cups of coffee I've ever, ever had Uh, and Instantly, instantly became a fan um, more so than I was before just because it's nice to actually know the owners and and be able to talk to the folks behind the scenes that are roasting it, making all the t-shirts, all that great stuff. Um, by the way, if you use the coupon code CRAFT15, that's going to get you 15% off of your order on BlackRifleCoffee.com. Some of these things are not going to be included in that 15% discount. Like you're not going to be able to buy the ready to drink cans because I mean, let's face it. It's a liquid. It's in an aluminum can. And I don't think they want to ship that. Uh, It just gets heavy and gets really pricey. But if you do get yourself some of those ready to drink cans, watch out. They've got 200 milligrams of caffeine and they catch up on you very quickly. So use craft 15, get yourself some of the instant coffee, some of the K cups, get yourself some of the coffee that's ground, get yourself some of the other stuff. Um, I think some of the special brews aren't included on there. You're just going to have to play around and try to figure out what you get 15% off on, but I promise you it'll save you some. And in this day and age with this recession, with all the crazy prices, use that extra 15% off to buy more coffee or buy ammo or something like that. All right, guys. Uh, Again, thank you to Black Rifle Coffee. Thank you to Sig Sour. Without further ado, we're going to get into this podcast. Uh, Folks, please check out those sponsors. They're awesome people. Here we go. Hey guys, welcome to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. I am going to be your host for this episode. My name is Kevin Estella. I'm the lead survival instructor, director of training on the survival side of the house. And, uh, you know, I have an opportunity every once in a while to bring folks on this podcast that I've known for many years, right? In the past, I brought on Jerry Young. Jerry and I go back to 2006. He's now one of the Fieldcraft instructors over in North Carolina. He travels all over. Um, I've brought on my buddy, Kenny Stretz. Um, Stretz is a, a good dude, a shotgun instructor, a good cop. Um, I get to bring on good friends. And I consider this guest that you're about to hear from today, one of my my closest friends, someone I can confide just about anything Uh, in. And I will say this, uh, this guy breaks the mold and I'm going to let him tell you his story, but I'm going to tell you a quick story about this guy. Uh, This guest that we have on today, his name is Dr. Ian Wright. And when I first met Dr. Ian Wright, one of the first few words out of his mouth was, I believe, and I want to, I'll paraphrase it. I don't want to directly quote him or maybe he'll correct me later. When I first met him, he said, I want to piss on Canada. Um, That's right. He said, I want to piss on Canada. Um, you, have to, you have to understand when I first met him, I believe it was 2009, he and I met on the US-Canada border when I was teaching at the Wilderness Learning Center, which was literally on the US-Canada border in upstate New York. Dr. Ian just drove in from Maine and uh, he had a in very unfortunate experience traveling across the border because the GPS took him that way. Um, and what we found out we're like, <laughs> he's like, yeah, you know, they, they kind of accosted me at the border. Uh, so we'll get into that today. And because of that, he wanted to, you know, just, I don't know, spread a little something on Canada. So uh, in any case, we got to knowing, uh, I got to know Dr. Ian and it uh, turns out to be just a cool dude. And he, still to this day, he's someone that I can rely on for good medical advice, uh, a lot of laughs, uh, he's just, he's one of these guys that you want to have in your inner circle. So I don't know if that introduction did him justice or not. Probably not. Cause I have not finished my coffee yet, but Dr. Ian, how the heck are you, buddy?
1: I'm doing great. You know, I had a, um, I just came off of being on call and, um, I actually had a good night for the first time in a while. I, I want to preface everything <laughs> by saying, uh, I'm not a Canada hater uh you know i, I had a and I, i'll share it's a really funny experience um but I, I live on the border with canada not a canada hater but i, I was uh, i had an angry uh period of time um <laughs> while heading for uh an outdoor a bushcraft course in upstate new york that um at the wilderness learning center um just just that was just an amazing experience that's where i met uh kevin and um it was really a very special time for me Um, I'm a physician. I'm a surgeon. Uh, I trained at the University of South Carolina, um, and uh, did my critical care training there as well. Um, You know, I'm currently a surgeon up in Maine. I've been the uh, medical director for one of the largest fire departments in the state. I don't do that anymore. It was kind of time for me to to refocus uh, the things that I do. Uh, So I gave that up a few years ago. I was. I've also been uh, I was the medical director for the uh, paramedics on uh, George Bush, George Bush's compound here in Kennebunk. Um, So I've I've had, you know, I've been really fortunate. Um, Yeah, it didn't start out that way. I kind of started out. I I grew up in an area uh, called Prince George's County, Maryland, um, which is right on the border of the District of Columbia. And for those of you who are familiar with uh, Prince George's County uh, or who live there now or are from there, you know, I survived, uh, made it out of Prince George's County and surprisingly um, had not gone to jail, uh, unlike many of the other people I grew up with. Um, And it was it was interesting. You know, I I, um, had two parents that got divorced at a very young age. You know, was a product of the Prince George's County public schools and uh, was not really good with authority. Uh, So, you know, going to school, I figured was kind of optional, Um, didn't really enjoy it, but I spent a lot of time. You know, you grew up in the D.C. metro area and you have a lot of resources to kind of self-teach. I didn't like school. Uh, I felt you know like there were just other things I wanted to learn and read. Um, we didn't have much when I was growing up. Uh, we didn't have a, well, we had a TV, but there were, you know, I mean, back then there were three or four channels and, you know, we were, we were pretty broke. Uh, my dad was kind of in and out of jail for a little while. And so I, um, in order to feed myself, I, I quit high school. I think I was about 16 when I quit and um, worked, uh, built chimneys for a while. Um, And I was always in the fire department there. Uh, I was I became one of the youngest cardiac rescue technicians, which they don't have that anymore. It's really an intermediate paramedic level uh, in the state at 18. And, uh, you know, I was in the fire department. And um, I wasn't sure what to do with my life. You know, I, I had yeah, you know, and in hindsight, maybe I should have stayed in the at three o'clock in the morning when I'm getting called, and you know, I, I realized myself if I'd stayed in the fire department. I could be retired right now. Um, you know, I, I sometimes question my career moves, but I'm I'm actually exceedingly happy with with where I'm at.
0: I want to stop you there for a second because th- your story is something that when I was a high school history teacher, I had students that were you know, that they thought college was the only path, right? And I had a lot of students that were, uh, you know, on the cusp of passing and and failing. And it's very easy to write off those kids, right? A lot of teachers are quick to to write off those kids and be like, they'll never do this and they'll never do this. Well, there's a difference between a kid that can't do something and a kid that chooses not to do anything, right? And it sounds like you were that kid that basically said, screw this, I'm doing something else. But the important part of your story is that you said, I'm dropping out of high school.
1: Yeah, I... I just, um, I didn't like it. You know, I read a lot of books. I spent a lot of, I spent an enormous amount of time reading. I used to, I basically, after about the seventh grade, um, I would miss enormous swaths of school, you know, weeks at a time. And somehow I would talk my way back in and, um, they would get really mad at me. The, the thing that frustrated the, you know, the system was that I would come back, take the testing and crush it. And they would be really frustrated with that They, because I would, you know, I wouldn't, I refused to do homework. I thought it was kind of an encroachment on my time. But then I would read, you know, I was, I was like 12, 13, 14. I was reading Isaac Asimov's Guide to Shakespeare. I was reading, you know, math books. I was reading, you know, I just spent a lot of time reading because we, mostly because we didn't have television. So all I had was the, the television of my mind. And, you know, as I got older, I was like, well, I'm going to be a fire in the fire department. I might as well quit school, and get a GED. So, you know, when it came time to like figure out how to my, feed myself, I got a GED. You know, I, I quit school, got a GED, and I was laying brick. and And in that area at the time, they had what were called live-ins, and I would live at the fire department. I was basically homeless and kind of living at the fire department, working, trying to figure out what to do. And so I, you know, eventually I kind of, you know, I was working and I got a job also as a trauma technician at, um, you know, the trauma center. And then I was doing really well. So I, I decided that I wanted to be a nurse, you know, so I had a GED. And, and now I'm, you know, I got a little, they have tuition reimbursement. So as long as I got an A or a B, and I, I said, well, I better go get some sort of education. So I started going to community college. And you know in order to get paid back you had to get an a or a b so i said well i don't you know i want my money so i was doing really really well and uh i said well i want to be a nurse i'll be a nurse i'll be a paramedic i, I had a bunch of friends that were nurses and paramedics and you know were flight medics for MedStar and all this into fairfax county and all the surrounding regions And i was like this would be great i'll be a nurse paramedic firefighter and i got turned down for nursing school And I got turned out for nursing school because I only had a GED. And, you know, it was a little bit of a, it was a setback, but I thought, well, I'll just keep going, you know, keep taking college courses and I'll be a PA. And I thought that'd be great. You know, I'll be a PA, firefighter, paramedic, and um, it'll be spectacular. You know, I will have a good life, work okay, you know, do what I love doing. So I applied to PA school. And I got turned down by this. At this point, I'm going to the University of Maryland, and I'm just doing really well. So here I was, you know, I, I got turned down for PA school and I was just profoundly depressed about that. And, you know, one of my closest friends, still one of my closest friends at the time was an, is and was an emergency medicine physician. And I was sitting there and I was kind of lamenting, you know what I was going to do and how I was going to do it. And he said PA or nurse. He said, there's no way. You're going to get fired from every job you ever get because you have way too big of a mouth. He said, there's there's no way you could do either. One. And I said to my friend Terry, I said, you know, I just don't think that somebody from where I'm from is going to ever go to medical school. And he said, really? Do you think that you, those, and there were a bunch of residents in the emergency room, you know, medicine residents. And he says, do you really think those morons are smarter than you are. And I'd been teaching, you know, ACLS advanced cardiac life support to residents at that time and participating in all this instruction. It was like the light shot out of the sky. So, oh my God, I can do it. And, um, and that's what I did. So I went to medical school and, um, you know, during medical school, I swore I wanted to be an emergency medicine physician. And, you know, I'd gotten married and, you know, my wife was just, you know, very supportive. And, um, you know, unfortunately, I had told my wife for years that being a surgeons are terrible. They're all jerks. They You know, they cheat on their wives. They're all married more than once. And my very first rotation was in surgery. And, um, I walked in with a really crummy attitude and I went into the, uh, operating room and they were doing a neck operation. And from the time they cut that skin to the end of the operation, I knew in my heart of hearts that that's what I had to do. And it was, it was like, I had this epiphany and, uh, however, I was terrified because I didn't want to come out and say that I wanted to be a surgeon. You know, it's kind of like a closet surgeon.
0: Yeah. And you just talked all this trash about surgeons to your wife and now your wife is like, Oh, you want to be like one of those guys, huh? (laughs)
1: Yeah. You know, it was just one of those things where I was like, boy, how am I going to recover this? So I I kept kind of denying it to myself. I said, well, you know, let me, let me do more. And the more rotations I did, um, the, the, the more I wanted to be a surgeon. So finally it comes to, you know, match time where you fill out your applications and you go on interviews. And I had to admit to my wife that I wanted to be a surgeon. Excuse me. And so I, you know, I told her she subsequently uh, cried for about three days. (laughs) And then, you know, we kind of talked it out and she's, you know, she got on board and, um, that's how I ended up at the University of South Carolina. And I, I, I'll tell you my my funniest story when I was interviewing for a surgery position, I, I had done my only bad grade, I finished number one in my class, but my only bad grade, and I say bad, it was, you know, it was a high pass still. Um, I was on psychiatry, and like every other surgeon in the world, I wanted to get my my things done early in the morning, psychiatry folks just don't do that. They kind of cruise through the day and it's not a dig on psychiatry people. It's just how their day is. So I would come in early and I'd get everything done. And, you know, the residents were a little frustrated with me because I would be out the door by like 11 o'clock and I was studying for, you know, part one of boards for medicine, things like that. And I was out the door and studying. Well, they decided that I wasn't working enough. So they said, here's a tape recorder. We want you to do, Uh, psych interviews on pre-op patients, and you can record it, and then we'll listen to it, and we'll talk about it, and I I thought that was a little punitive, and, you know, the the person inside of me that doesn't like authority really got fired up about that, so I went to the newborn nursery, and I found a child that was, you know, a newborn that was going to have a circumcision the next day, and I went to the bed, and I hit play on the tape recorder, and I said, so baby doe or you know, whatever the name was, I see you're having a circumcision tomorrow. How do you feel about that? Shook the crib a little bit and the the baby cried. And, um, yeah, so I went through about 45 minutes of psychiatric interview with a crying child. Jesus. And I thought that would be, I thought that was going to be pretty funny. Uh, so I went to, um, rounds the next morning with all the psychiatry folks and, uh, there was the chairman of the psychiatry department who uh, decided to come to rounds that day and he wanted to hear it, and he said, oh, you know, I hear you've done been doing this project. Do you want to be a surgeon and blah, blah, blah? And I was like, ooh, this is not going to go well. So they hit play on the tape recorder and the guy let the entire thing play out. And uh, needless to say, it was not as funny to them as it was to me. Uh, I, uh, ended up in the Dean's office and, uh, fortunately our Dean was a surgeon. He says, you know, they're, they're especially mad at you because you killed the exam, but you did this. So here's the deal. They can't really touch you, but you're going to have to repeat two weeks of psychiatry. And I would suggest that you just show up, spend the day there, do whatever they want to do. Well, I fast forward to my interviews for, um, for surgery, the, the one place I matched The chairman of the department was interviewing me and he says, I see you have this bad grade here or not bad grade, but this is your lowest grades in psychiatry. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, well, tell me about that. So I explained what I did and I said, you know, it's probably not the best thing to do. And he said, well, this is at the University of South Carolina. He said, well, in my opinion, son, that gets you extra marks in the department of surgery. (laughs) And so that's how I ended up uh, being a surgeon and uh, spent six years there uh, in training and um, was really kind of trying to figure out what to do after that and where I was gonna go. I I had looked at UCLA, um, I had looked at a place in Wisconsin called the Marshfield Clinic, Savannah, um, just all over the place. And I I was, my wife's Puerto Rican and you know, we grew up in the D.C. metro area together, and I got this this headhunter contact me and said, would you be interested in going to Maine? And I told my wife about this, and she said, well, we can go, but there's no way I'm moving to Maine. And I said, okay, well, let's just go. It's a free trip. And, and you know, before,
0: before you finish, like, her idea, I remember you telling me this before, her idea of Maine was just like woods, right? Like, it's just the thick, like you're in the sticks, just woods.
1: Yeah, yeah we thought it was Alaska life, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean it it really, you know, we, we didn't, we weren't even sure if people had indoor plumbing up here, you know? Well,
0: to be fair, some places they still don't probably.
1: (laughs) That is true. (laughs) I do have friends. I have friends that farm that do not have indoor plumbing, but make a long story short, you know, so, so I, we came to Maine and we, you know, I, my first job in Maine, um, we were there and and it was amazing. And you know, growing up in the DC metro area, you have an idea of what things cost. And this is two thousand and eight. We have an idea of what things cost. and it was it was surprisingly less. Um, and so and and then the worst thing, you know we opened up the newspaper, the front page of the newspaper, the worst thing that happened was that some kids had a keg party, and that made the front page news. and you know, growing up in an area where it's, you know, all penetrating trauma and where I was where I had trained, it was, you know, shooting, shooting, stabbing, shooting, stabbing, you know, and that kind of thing. And that's what I was used to. You know, now we have, you know, one child heading for two children. And so my wife said, you know, I think I want to move here. So we, you know, and I looked at a few more places and then we decided that we would move to Maine. So we moved to Maine. And at that point, you know, I had always grown up as a city kid. I was completely naive to anything involving that that didn't involve pavement. Um, Knew nothing about woods, trees. You know, I I was a guy that would go and buy firewood, you know, and things like that. And, um, you know, and I thought, you know, These kind of things were, they were just a mystery, you know, fishing for me at that time involved, you know, is there a charter? Who's going to bait my hook for me? You know, I mean, I don't know anything about this stuff. So I moved to Maine and I made this conscious decision. I said, I really need to learn. I live in this beautiful place filled with wilderness. I should probably learn how to be a little more comfortable in the woods. So I, I look all around. And I find this, you know, I I didn't want to fly anywhere. I really wanted to find someplace that was regional and appropriate for the Northeast. And so I found the wilderness learning center and, um, you know, there was a, you know, and that's where Kevin was working there at the time. And so I said, I register for this course. I buy, you know, I, I, I had just gotten job, you know, I was one year into having a job as a surgeon. So, you know, all of a sudden I went from making, you know, $38,000 a year to a surgeon's salary. So, you know, money, it, it didn't just burn a hole in my pocket. I mean, it was like molten lava going through my, and, and if I saw something interesting, I was like, okay, now I need a bunch of outdoor gear.
0: And, and, and the funny thing too, is when you told me when we first met, you were like, like, yeah, you know, I'm, I am a surgeon. I do make a surgeon salary, but you said, but I do have a Latino wife who loves to shop. (laughs) And I was like, Oh my God, I feel for you, buddy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But, but my wife, you know, my wife at the time and still is, she's, she is the voice of reason. I, I didn't have anything growing up. So I was not, and still am not great with money. I'm much better now. Um, but my wife was really kind of the voice of reason, but you know, as you, As your income changes, you kind of have the ability to hide more stuff. I I was able to hide more toys from my wife that I wanted. So I I bought all this. Yeah. I remember I had, um, I bought like a super expensive Burl stock, uh, backpack. You know, I had some Oakley boots that I wore at that time. I bought all this stuff that I thought, well, that's what I really need. This is what you need for a bushcraft course. And so, um, I, I showed, uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you about the trip because this is where my, my temporary Canada <laughs> anger came in. So, yeah, I had this great truck. Um, it was a Tundra, which one day Kevin can tell the story about how he pulled my Tundra out of a snowbank with his.
0: <laughs> it was a GMC uh, envoy at the time. His,
1: yeah, his GMC envoy, which was uh, somewhat embarrassed. My, my Tundra was uh, embarrassed by that for quite some time. But, um, so I, I said, okay, cool. You know, and I, I never checked in. You know, here I was, I would just press the GPS button and go, you know, cause I didn't know where I was going and nor did I know anything about maps or anything like that at that point in my life. So I pressed the GPS button, I'm, I'm listening to the radio. I was on the phone with my dad at the time and we were talking and, it, you know, next thing I know, I'm kind of cruising through Vermont and next thing I know, I'm pulling up to the border crossing in Canada. And I said, well, this isn't what I wanted to do. Let me turn around and go back. And I got up to the border checkpoint with the Canadian border patrol. And I said, hey, sorry, didn't mean to come this far. Um, Is there a place I can turn around? I'm I'm, I'm going to New York and my GPS took me this way. And they said, do you have a passport? It was, you know, (laughs) this is Quebec. It's the French side of Canada. And I said, no, like I said, I mean, look at my GPS over here. I'm trying to go to New York and my GPS took me this way and it was a mistake. And I apologize. You are already in Canada, sir. Please pull into the station. I was like, no, no, no. But but look, I don't mean to be in Canada. Canada is not my goal to be in. I just wanted to go to New York and my GPS. Yes, sir. please pull into the station. I said, okay, fine. So Fortunately, um, before I left, you know, because I was crossing state lines, I had taken my firearms out of my vehicle and I made sure um, that I didn't have anything that would get me in trouble um, crossing into, you know, through Vermont, into New York and things like that. Unfortunately, I had left a couple, I had like a couple of rounds in my cup holder. You know, some, I think I had a, you know, one was a .357, one was a nine millimeter round and, you know, just kind of.
0: And I, I guarantee, the- I guarantee if anyone is listening to this as a shooter, you probably can go through your car and find like that one round of nine millimeter that rolled behind like the folding back seat, And it's like, it's covered in dirt and grime, but it's there, you know, like we all have random rounds. It's fun when you find them in the washing machine too.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, so here I was, I pull into the station it was, please step out of your vehicle and into the station. I was like, yep. So I, I'm there and, the, you know, the guy says, well, what is your business in Canada? I said, well, I, you know, like I explained to the person outside, I really don't have any business in Canada. Um, you know, I, I'm going to New York. Here's the receipt for this course that I'm taking. May we look in your vehicle? Yes, of course. You know, I mean, that this is not a situation where you want to begin any kind of argument. You know, it's it was a yes, sir, no, sir. Because I, I was starting to get the feeling that, This was not going very well and they didn't appreciate my mistake. And um, so I kind of peek out the window and they are going through my car, you know, like, you know, like I'm a coyote on the Mexican border. I mean, they like all the stuff is out of my car. My gear is all out of my car. You know, everything that I had with me is piled up on the And I said, oh, my God, this is not good so um you know i'm sitting there and i ended up spending about three hours there with them asking me the same i'm like look i'm a doctor here's my name i actually have my badge with me from work i apologize yeah i went through the same story probably about 20 or 30 times with them saying please lift up your shirt please lift up your pants legs uh, you seem to have a lot of very military appearing gear in your vehicle. What is that about? And I was like, "Yep, here's the receipt for the course that I'm going to. It is a bushcraft and wilderness survival course." Your knife is very large. I'm like, "Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you." I had a, you know, that I had a um, uh, Barker knives Bravo one. Still have it. Um, and it's just, you know, it's big knife. And I thought, you know, big knife is at that point in my, in my brain, I thought, oh, you got to have a big knife for a bushcraft course, you know? And, um, so they went through, uh, that they asked me that same question about 40 times. I was really, really frustrated. And finally, the guy gives me my license and he says, have a nice day. Welcome to Canada. And I was like, I, and meanwhile i gotta put all my stuff back together put it back in my truck you know and then i said well i'm already in canada i might as well take the shortcut over to new york and he tells me he goes sir you may have some trouble uh getting back into the united states since you do not have a passport with you and i said all right i doubt it but okay uh so i was a little concerned about that so i'm driving across canada i get to the border checkpoint in new york and I pull up, and there's this, um, you know, the Border Patrol agent. And I was like, man, thank God I'm back in the United States. It's great to see you guys. Here's the stuff that just happened to me, and I am really angry, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And he goes, can I see your license? I said, yep. And he says, okay, come on in. That was it. I mean, they had me terrified that I wouldn't be able to get back into the United States. I subsequently, as soon as I crossed back into the United States, I called my wife and I said, please go through the house, find anything that says made in Canada, throw it in the front yard and pour gas on it and light it backfire. fire. <laughs> um, I spent about two hours uh, screaming at Canada from the, the border as soon as I got back across. And when I, when I got to the Wilderness Learning Center, um, they said, you know, hey, the, the border is the backside of the property. And I said, "Well, uh, that's great because I'm going to r- walk right up to that border and whiz on Canada after that experience," um, which I did, and uh, subsequently uh, went back to Canada for a wedding uh, one time. Since then, but I, I have nothing. I have no issue with Canada. I'd, I'd probably I want to go to Quebec City this winter time just.
0: For <clears> and you know something that experience that you had is not unique to just you. Like there are people uh, that. You're just traveling like in Michigan or Washington State, Maine, Vermont, and you accidentally end up in Canada, right? I mean, not all the border crossings are clearly labeled and you could be on someone's property and just happen to hunt and keep following a deer into Canada. Um, But my God, the the firearms laws are so, so different in Canada. Um, I mean, especially lately with Trudeau and what he, what he pushed through, but one of the the funniest things about Canada, and anyone that's listening who has ever seen Canadian bacon, it's so true. You know, they're driving through Canada and they've got uh, all of their their guns in the car, like in, in Canadian bacon, they're trying to take over the government. So uh, they've got all the guns in the car and they've got signs on the side of the car that say like F Canada and you know, down with Canada. And they get pulled over and they're like, oh my God, we're, we're stuck, right? Like the, the, the cops got us the cop walks up and he's like, sir, sir, you cannot have that on the side of your vehicle. It must be in French too. And they're like, what? You know, and it's obviously it's satire. So it's a parody, but, uh, but it is true. Like you get close to the Canadian border and you're going to start seeing everything is in, uh, English and French. Um, and if you happen to be on the wrong side of the law in Canada, you are definitely going to be looked at as a weirdo, um, And, you know, we have a lot of focus on the southern border, you know, and there's no doubt there's bad stuff happening on the southern border, all sorts of of crime happening on the southern border. But there's no doubt crime that's happening on the northern border. And I mean, when I was up at the survival school, I mean, the stories that we had of the, the border patrol and what they were and what they were not able to stop would shock most of the United States and continental U.S. So
1: damn it, it's a fascinating place um you know i mean living in maine i do uh interact with you know our, our canadian uh folks quite a bit uh within the medical system um you know it's it's one of the reasons why i am uh not a fan of socialized medicine um, which i can you know i mean this is not a place for that conversation but let's just say uh, I've done a lot of surgery on Canadians who could have had their surgery months previously and knew they needed surgery months previously, and they just show up and end up in an emergency situation and get, instead of having a planned operation, they get an emergency operation when they could have had a planned operation in Canada months before. Um, but they just, you know, it's, it's a different system. Uh, I won't, it's, it's, not, it's not for me. Uh, it's not something that I like. Um, but it does, you know, if, if you, you know, if you want to have glasses and teeth all the time, that's the way to go. Um, you know, so, so that was my introduction. And and I really had this great experience at the Wilderness Learning Center. I learned that was the first time in my life that I had slept in the woods, you know, by myself. And, um, you know, it was, it was You know, I I remember the first night I was terrified um, because you just, you know, having grown up in the city, I was used to hearing traffic sounds and things like that that I could fall asleep instantly to. And, you know, it was very new to me and very unsettling that first night to hear kind of the, the movement and the animals of the forest and things like that. And I was terrified. I was like, oh, my God, something's going to get me. I'm going to get, you know, what's going to happen to me? And, um, you know, during that time, that week that I spent there at the Wilderness Learning Center, I really, you know, I had this opportunity to really kind of continue to to demystify the, the woods for me. And it was and I found it was a place of solace and this really wonderful experience and you know i mean looking back on it it's so funny to me to think about how i thought at that time but i I think a lot of people are there and i think you know the the answer is not to really make fun of them but to share you know like what kevin did and one of the things i really enjoy about you kevin is that you know i i didn't feel like i was looked down upon it was a it was a sharing of your understanding Of bushcraft and wilderness survival and navigation and all this stuff, you know, that, that, that made me at ease and comfortable in that environment. And I left that week hungry for more and more of those experiences.
0: And and probably ready to, to burn another hole in your pocket when you're like, damn, I need that. Damn, I need that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was, you know, it was an interesting experience. It was like, okay, uh, most of this gear I do not need. Um, but there's a whole bunch of really interesting, uh, new gear that, um, that I can spend money on. It's a lot of fun. Um, you know, I wish, you know, every time Kevin puts up a knife that he reviews and I see one that I like, I'm like, gosh, you know, it's killing me.
0: Yeah. Let's talk Um, about that for a bit because, you know, I want to obviously still get to some medical stuff, but I know that you you have a, a good collection of gear, but not just a whole bunch of gear, but the right stuff. Um, for a while, you were on a kick of sharpening knives and you would message me and you'd be like, I can literally split hair with this knife. Like I've put a, an edge I could do surgery with on this knife and then your yeah. vehicle you've built up.
1: Yeah, my so my initial, you know, I, I, I started my, my very first knife that I thought was worthwhile. You know, and I, I still have that that big Bark River knife, but I, I don't use it very much, even though it's a great chopper. Um, but my very first knife was a that I that I really used and continue to use this day was the Bark River knife. Fox River it was the Wilderness Learning Center knife, and it had the Wilderness Learning Center stamp on it. And you know, I I learned. Um, you know how to take care of it and knife work and you know a lot of that thanks to Kevin and Marty Simon who was you know just you know an amazing uh, wilderness instructor who had a great sense of humor and was just a, a great teacher and very good with me and you know his loss is you know the loss of Marty is a is a you know big blow to the survival community but you know I, I wanted to be able I'm a surgeon and I like a sharp knife. So I wanted to be able to sharpen a knife better than anybody else. So I, I bought uh, Japanese Waterstones was my first foray into that. And I, you know, I got the ones that were up to, you know, the ones that you would use to hone a straight razor. So a 12,000 grit and I would put a mirror edge on the, the edge of the blade and just see how sharp I could get it. Um, And that was, that was an enormous amount of fun to do that. Subsequently, you know, I still am just fascinated with sharpening my knives, but you know, I'm I'm a little lazier now. So I have two different systems now that I really like a lot. One is the, the Ken onion, um, you know, the electric sharpener with the belt, the belt sharpener, um, which I really like. Uh, it's great for kitchen knives. I've sharpened my regular knives with it. Um, and I, I enjoy that one. Um, the other one that I just got that I'm just starting to use is the R- Ruixen Pro sharpening system. Uh, and I haven't, you know, you, you see the ads for it and it looks great, uh, but I'm really new to that one and I haven't 100% figured that out yet. I do like the fact that I could take my phone and you know measure the angle perfectly, <laughs> but I really like. Yeah, you know, I, I will tell you the best. Yeah, the two systems that I like the best are the Ken Onion because, you know, I really like that convex edge right at the edge. And I think that that's really kind of a very strong, very good edge to have, um, you know, so, so I like that convex. Even if you have a scandy grind, that last little bit of edge on it, I like to be convex. And you can really only get that with a belt sharpening system.
0: You need something that has slack in it.
1: <clears throat> yep. Yeah, I have a little slack. Otherwise, you get that, you know, that V-shaped edge. And, you know, that's a great edge. And I will tell you, I got knives that I, you know, when I sharpen with my Japanese water stones, they're awesome. But you don't have that last little bit of convexity. And, um, yeah, I mean, you can approximate that with a lot of stropping, but you don't get that true convex last little bit. So I, I enjoy that. Yeah, I remember when we got together, I think Lieutenant Mike was there was um, one of the summertime events at Wilderness Learning Center. Um, You know, the three of us were had kind of busted out our edges and it was funny to watch people's eyes when you go across a piece of paper, like it was butter and, you know, things like that. Everybody wants you to sharpen their knives when they see that that's, that's the one downside. If you're really good at sharpening knives, don't tell anybody.
0: Yeah, you're because, also going to end up with no leg hair and no arm hair. It's like uh, right, Robert, right, De- right. Robert De Niro in the right. fan, right? He's like.
1: Right. You, you look like you have some sort of weird autoimmune disease where you lose hair and patches all over your body, showing people <laughs> how sharp your knives are. But it, it looks a little odd, you know, so. But you also develop a lot of friends at those events, you know, because they're like, oh, man, can you sharpen my knife? Yeah, and, and I never. I mean, how can you say no? You know, it's, it's a they're complimenting you.
0: So, so it's funny because that story brings up two points that I know listeners are going to want to hear. We're doing a collaboration with Winkler Knives, and, Ives, and uh, Dan Winkler and I have been friends for many, many years through Scioc and through through different different uh, like just backgrounds. And uh, before I joined Fieldcraft, I was like, Dan, do you want to do a collaboration? And he's like, Absolutely, I'd love to. So we're doing a knife. We're going to call it the General Purpose, the GP and if you were to hold up a Bark River Fox River that was the old survival school knife and you hold up the GP you're going to see some very very common like form elements where you're like oh that's why it looks like that and there were some criticisms of the of the Fox River over the years and i worked that out of the design when we made it so if you guys are wondering like what the collaboration knife is going to look like just look to the history that i have with that knife as an instructor and that's that and then the other thing uh Damn, I forgot where I was going with that. So, uh, uh, oh yeah, uh, we're planning on doing, or I'm at least planning on doing some type of rendezvous where it's going to be like a field craft survival student rendezvous, where just like at the Wilderness Learning Center, we find a location, we have a common fire, we share food, we BS, we do little seminars, we do giveaways, because that's really missing, I feel, and they're just fun, you know. Like they're not meant for just the able-bodied men and women. They're meant for kids. Like bring dogs. Just make sure the dogs don't fight. And they're just a like good time. So, if you guys are wondering what's cooking at Fieldcraft, those are a couple things. So, yeah, um, and I
1: will I will tell you just to support uh, the bringing the children thing. So I have a, you know, I have a son who uh, has is on the autism spectrum, very high function. He just graduated from high school, I and mean, then exceedingly proud of him but when he was seven um we had a winter camping event now this is winter in upstate new york and um you know kevin was there a lot of you know bushcraft guys were there and we camped out for four or five days uh, in the snow and i brought my seven-year-old with me who is on the autism spectrum and everybody was so great with him that, that my son remembers it to this day. He's 19. He remembers it to this day. And it was just a, an amazing experience for him. Um, and and this, these events are ex- incredibly kid friendly. And everybody is, is really good with children, in my experience. So just wanted to throw that
0: out. There now, say, let's say, oh, yo, my god, you're welcome. Uh, let's talk about your vehicle. Uh, cause a lot of the folks listening are overlanders, off-roaders and, you know, you started off with the Tundra and then, well, at least since I've known you, and then you had a Tacoma and then you're now in the, the, um, the Jeep pickup, right?
1: Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I had a, when, when I was moving from South Carolina to Maine, I bought, um, a Tundra because, you know, I thought that's what you were supposed to have. And I love trucks you know, it was funny, I, I showed up at the at the Toyota dealership with jeans and t shirt. And in my back pocket, I had my contract. And, you know, like <laughs> nobody wanted to talk to me at first, because, you know, I have some tattoos. And, you know, I, I don't look like the guy that's going to buy a $60,000 vehicle. And um, finally, you know, somebody said, you know, somebody talked to me, and they said, I said, I want to test drive a Tundra. And they said, well, do you want to try the tacoma first and i said no i want to test drive a tundra and um so i i ended up they ended up like kind of talking me into driving both and i was finally i just gave in because i thought well they, they don't know anything about me I'll, I'll drive it so he came back and i said i want the tundra and he said well are you sure you can afford it and i said okay Yes, I'm fairly certain. And I would like one with all the stuff that you can load into it. And if you can think of any more stuff, put it on there. So I pulled out my contract and all of a sudden everybody was exceedingly nice to me. Um, I had that Tundra until 2012. So it was a 08 and I sold it in 2012 because the Tundra, while I love that thing, um, the Crewmax with the iForce V8, on a good day, going downhill would get about 13 miles to the gallon. Oh, and if, and for those of you that remember, in 2012, gas prices were lower than they are now. But at that time, they were quite high. It was four and a quarter a gallon. And my job changed to where I had a 55, 60 mile commute twice a day at that point. And so my first week, I dropped like 800 bucks in gas, 900 bucks. I can't remember because I had to go back and forth you know, twice a day. And then there was regular driving and then, you know, some other things between, you know, a couple of hospitals. And I said, my God, I can't do this. So I went and I bought the Tacoma and I knew that I wanted to, you know, kind of have an overlanding type of life. So I, I had that for the longest time. And I, I still have that Tacoma to this day. It's got you know kind of a nice metal bumpers, and um, I've got a good winch on the front, and um, I have one of the uh, one of the fabric covers for the rear. Uh, I'm not gonna, you know, I mean whichever one you get, there's there's two companies that make them. They're both equivalent. Uh, you know, I don't I don't have a preference of one over the other. If anybody was curious. Um, And i really love that vehicle. I beat it up. You know, I, I actually, my son drives that more often than, you know, that that's really his vehicle now. Um, And he, you know, I don't think he appreciates how cool that vehicle is (laughs) for, for a 19 year old, but it's pretty cool. Um, I put uh, some uh, stronger, you know, old man emu leaf springs on it to kind of settle that ride out a little bit. So I could put more gear in the back. I like to ice fish a lot. So I, I carry a lot of stuff. Uh, in the back. And um, so my son has that one. I subsequently upgraded to a Jeep Gladiator um, Rubicon edition um, with, you know, it's got the, it comes with a two and a half inch lift. I went to 37s for tire size. I was at 35s when I first got it, Um, went to 37s. Um, I do have uh, some 67 designs, mounting points in the front that holds both my phone uh, and iPad. um, And uh, it also holds my ham radio, um, the header for my ham radio. So I like to have, you know, more than one form of communication. I am a licensed ham radio uh, technician level um, and I'm looking to improve that. Uh, So I wanted to have navigation. I have two different forms of navigation. There's, you know, the GPS with the phone, with different apps, there's the cars navigation. Um, and I do, after spending time at the Wilderness Learning Center, I do keep paper maps with me um, wherever I go, because you, you, you know, electronics will fail, uh, paper, unless you burn it, uh, does not fail. Um, I also, you can go online, and this is a shameless plug for the main gazetteer, but there is a company, and I don't know the name of it, that, um, that laminates, and spiral binds the main gazetteer. And I like that because I can take, you know, grease pencils or non permanent markers and draw on the maps, mark routes, and, you know, things like that. So, um, you know, I, I think that's great. On the back, I use uh, a rack system. I use the Lightner Designs rack system with uh, a few different gear pods. Um, I have um, the one. The GearPod XL, the longer one. And then I have uh, two of the smaller ones, plus the Rotopax gas and water uh, mounting system. Um, I also bought their uh, shower or their, you know, their water tank that you can pressurize. I will say that's an amazingly good thing to have when you have kids and you, you know, you go out in the woods with with kids, um, and especially I have a daughter. You know, little girls do not, you know, they don't like two things. They don't want to be dirty for extended periods of time. Little boys don't care about that. Um, and, you know, your wife, wives generally don't want to be dirty for extended periods of time. So, you know, a, a good way to take a shower is great. Um, the, uh, what else do I have? For uh, air up, air down and, and air operations and things like that, I use a power tank. Um, it's a CO2 system. The fascinating part with the power tank is that you gotta find some place to fill it. And here's my advice with that. A lot of places, if you know somebody that has a welding business, generally they can fill them for you with the CO2. Um, If you don't know anybody, what I found is the nicest people out there are the ones that own uh, fire extinguisher companies. Um, When I first got my power tank, I had to get it tested and filled and you know all these, you know the welding supply place. Every place I called was like, "Oh yeah, you can drop it off. Drop it off with us. We'll, we'll have it ready in a couple of weeks." And I said, "Well, that's crazy." So I ended up calling a fire extinguisher place. I get this really nice person on the phone, and they said, "Oh yeah, bring it down. It'll take us ten minutes."
0: Like it's just like, just I so could. you know, like I'm I've, I've never heard of that, and I'm on I'm on my computer right now, and I just looked up fire extinguisher company near me. There's a yeah. crap ton of them right in my mind. Yeah, yeah.
1: And they're really they'll refill they refill fire extinguishers and they have CO. you know, they refill CO2 fire extinguishers. It's the exact same thing. So they they were just amazingly nice. They had no and and they charged me you know all these uh, welding places. They wanted like deposits of 50 and 75 dollars and a hundred bucks, and you know, maybe you'll get your tank back, maybe you won't. And I went down there. They pressure tested it. They did everything. They probably spent more time looking at my rig than anything else. And they, it like, they did it all for like $26, you know, and, and they were just super nice. And i found that the fire extinguisher places generally are people now. I, and I say this cause I'm biased, you know, I used to be a fireman, you know, and, and I spent a lot of time with folks in that industry. And so I, I do have a bias there, but they were just super nice. No matter what I did, um, you know, with anybody else, they, they just weren't that interested. I mean, and, you know, to their credit, they're interested in bigger business deals than just, you know, old Doc right filling up his CO2 power tank so he can air up, air down his tires, run power tools, et cetera, and things like that. So um, that's my air up, air down. As far as recovery gear, um, I use ARB straps, um, you know, uh, protection for trees. Um, you can carry a land anchor with you, but what I would suggest is that you go to a good, um, wilderness survival, uh, school that includes vehicle recovery operations. Um, you know, I don't know if you guys are doing that, Kevin, but I know that you do that. Um, and you learn all the different ways that you can make things on your own. Um, To recover your vehicle and it doesn't take much time and it's super easy instead of spending $200 on a land anchor. Um, There's just a lot of different ways to do it. um, And it's, it's a lot of fun and, you know, practice.
0: Yeah, and and I I do
1: promise, I do promise everybody, I will talk about the medical portion of this
0: stuff. That's that's actually what I want to get to now because a while back I had submitted to the uh, the gods of Instagram. I was like, all right, I'm going to be podcasting my buddy Ian. He's a doctor. Do you have any medical questions? So I've got a handful of questions, and then what we can do is go into the more specifics after. Um, Yeah, I'm excited. All right, so this one comes from uh, he's a fellow Asian, uh, Yim Yuhan Peter. He said, how to treat trauma injuries such as a hit by a sledgehammer, except the head part. So you accidentally hit yourself with a sledgehammer, I'm assuming probably in the lower extremities. What do you do to treat that?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, so it's, it's, that's a pretty broad, it, it's a really broad um, question. So you know, I would I would be willing to bet that what he's talking about is you're swinging a sledgehammer, you hit a foot, a toe, uh, or a shin. So really kind of what you're talking about there is you have a fracture, uh, you know, it's a lower extremity fracture. Um, you know, there's, there's a few things, you know, you want to stabilize the joint above and below. There's a number of different systems you can do that and you have to be prepared to do that. And it depends on what kind of environment you're in, right? So if you're in an austere environment um, you can use things like sam splints sam is kind of a trademark for this multiple splint um, and ace bandages and things like that but you really want to you know you want to immobilize a fracture because it's going to feel better if you're moving a fracture around the bone edges grind against one another The, the periosteum or the outer portion of the bone does have that's where the pain is going to occur. And those sharp edges can cut things on the inside that you don't want to cut. you know, really you're talking about a lower leg fracture toe fractures, straightforward, buddy tape it to the other toe. Don't worry about it, it's going to get better unless there's a bone sticking out. Um, And that's really kind of the crux of it, you have to determine whether or not you have an open or closed fracture. Open fractures are, you know, fractures that have lacerations or the fractures are quote unquote open there is bone sticking out these are things that you want to you know unless you are a professional you want to immobilize them in place Um, if you want to do more than that then i would suggest you know getting further training but i will tell you you know what you really need to do is immobilize them and get them to uh to a center where there is you know an emergency room an orthopedic surgeon things like that Foot fractures, again, same thing, you know, for the most part, you want to immobilize it. Um, And and again, you can use sand splints, you can use pillow splints, and pillow splints are just you wrap a pillow around it and, you know, you can either tape that pillow together or ace wrap it together or, you know, kind of whatever you want to do. And that's, that's the crux of it. You really have to consider what, where you're at. Um, And make sure that you have communication with EMS. If you don't, you have to have an extrication plan. If you are by yourself, you need to consider what you can do if you are unable to um, extract yourself from the situation. If you're, you know, if you're in a remote area and you're not able to drive, do you need some sort of communication device for someone to come and get you? Yeah, and, and all of this kind of ties together with just common sense.
0: Makes you wonder um, how many people have ever considered driving with their left foot. You know what I mean? Like, right. like you injure your right foot, now you just have your left. Right. Like, have you ever hit the gas pedal with your left foot? I, right. I think right Can now people are it? like, what the hell? You never thought of that.
1: Right. Can you do it? Can you, you know, it's, it's the same as shooting with the offhand. You know, how many people, when you go practice with your firearm, shoot with the offhand? Um, you know, can you do it? Are you, can you be a two foot driver? Now, this is not stuff that is recommended. It is not, you know, I mean, two foot driving, unless you're a police officer or a race car driver, um, or you drive fire apparatus, two foot driving, one foot on the brake, one foot on the gas is something that you need to be trained to do. And a professional should teach you how to do it. But, you know, in an emergency, you know, can you go, go to a parking lot, you know, to t- put your sit on your right foot, go to a parking lot where it's nice and safe and, you know, can you get from place to place with, you know, with your with left foot driving? Um, and that, that's a really good point. You know, can you try Think about these scenarios that you can get yourself into. You know, the first thing is, what can I do to stabilize myself? And again, you know, when you talk about lower extremity fractures, you can also get into situations where you have an open fracture and you're bleeding from something quite profusely. I'm a huge proponent of tourniquets and Stop the Bleed. Stop the Bleed is a national effort uh, on the part of hospitals, EMS, uh, fire, police um, to teach people how to put on tourniquets because they save lives.
0: Go on the record, and we've talked about this, what is the longest you've, you've been able to restore function to a limb after a tourniquet's been applied?
1: Yeah, so for the most part, you have six to eight hours you can leave that tourniquet on. The reality is, if you're not a doctor, don't take the tourniquet off. You know, if you're not a surgeon, leave that tourniquet in place. There used to be way back in the day before we realized how, how good tourniquets were. Um, you know, people would say, oh, you got to put a tourniquet on, but you got to loosen it every 15 minutes. It's not true. You know, realistically, you know, if you get that tourniquet off within six hours, you can just, you know, fix the problem and that's the end of it. If you go longer than that, you may have to do something to the lower extremity of the surgeon. may have to do something to the lower extremity. When you restore blood flow, it's called, they're called fasciotomies. It's where we purposely cut the fascia to prevent when you restore that blood flow, you get a lot of swelling and a lot of those products of anaerobic respiration, the lactic acid and all those things when you're your muscles are working without getting the oxygen that your blood supplies, um, those things kind of creep up. And when you release the tourniquet, you get a lot of edema down there. And you also flood your system with those products of anaerobic respiration. So you, you have to be prepared to deal with that. So what I tell people is two things. One is, if you have to keep a tourniquet on more than 68 hours, you're really thinking about life over limb. And that's just as important the other thing is there's not a lot of places other than really remote areas where you're gonna be more than six to eight hours from a facility where you can get the care that you need. And and yeah, and that's kind of what I think about, you know, what do people need in their personal kits? So you gotta think about your mission, your location and your time to definitive care. And those are, and, and I'll expand on that after we do some more questions, whatever you want me
0: to do. All right, here's a question for, me, uh, for you. This is from a guy whose Instagram name is F-U-C-K-T-H-E-Z-U-C. Uh, yeah, uh, okay, here we go. A lot of talk uh, right now. Trauma surgeons on 556223 wound versus nine millimeter Uh, I'm assuming this is because of the comment that nine millimeter will blow out the lungs. So the question is more lethal. And I'm assuming he's like, which one is more lethal five, five, six, nine millimeter. I'm guessing it's more of a joke question than anything else, but what is your experience with gunshot wounds?
1: Yeah. So I I have extensive experience with gunshot wounds I've taken care of um, every kind of round from. The hunting rounds and thirty odd sixes, all the way down to twenty two caliber, really crummy handgun wounds um, that you know are you know that that you would think of your typical kind of street uh, robbery person that would have. Um, I'll I'll say in advance, any handgun wound can be lethal. Um, I will shamelessly plug the Sig Sauer Academy for um, being such great instructors when I took the uh, Bullets and uh, Cars course in demonstrating how unsafe you are in a vehicle as even a 22 caliber round will penetrate that vehicle and end up in your body. Um, the difference between a 5.56 five, round and a, a nine millimeter round is v- velocity and kinetic energy. So the high velocity rounds or things that go over 1500 feet per second are a typical <clears throat> kind of uh, rifle rounds, hunting rounds, et cetera. And the, more can, the, the larger the bullet, the higher velocity, the more damage is inflicted. When you think about, you know, but you also have to factor in the bullet type, right? So when you have Bullets that um, mushroom or hollow point rounds, you know, they open up and they transfer more kinetic energy uh, and they do more damage. Um, Typical kind of uh, solid tipped rounds, um, which are your, you know, your standard military rounds are are not hollow point. Uh, Your standard uh, five, five, six rounds are not hollow point, Um, but they transfer a lot of energy and there is a blast around the bullet because of that transfer of energy Um, when you think about a solid point nine millimeter round that's not a high velocity round it penetrates and may kind of ricochet around some of the worst um, i will tell you one of the worst ones i've seen and the patient did not survive this is many many uh this is a number of years ago um, was somebody who was shot in the lower abdomen and pelvis by a 22 caliber round it just bounced around and it injured all of the the great veins in the pelvis and you you couldn't get clamps on it fast enough for the person not to exsanguinate and or bleed to death and you know we did our best um it was a gang fight uh we had multiple you know people shot at that time and you know that that person did not survive um you know a nine millimeter round One can be, you know, in a 22 round, one can be just as deadly as the other. How they inflict damage is different. You know, I've also seen, you know, nine millimeter rounds stopped by clothing or stopped by someone's, uh, their physical shape. You know, I remember seeing a very morbidly obese uh, individual who was shot, looked like he was hit right next to his belly button. And um, he looked fine and he was stone cold stable. So we cat scanned him. And the nine millimeter round went in next to his belly button, went all around. It took a, a big, long uh, course all the way around to his back and was right under the skin.
0: It, and, it passed you know, all the internal organs? It just went it around? Didn't
1: even, it didn't even enter his abdominal cavity. Oh, uh, so, I mean, the, I, I don't know if uh, you know, an angel was looking down on him that day. Uh, or what but it just went around I've seen you know things where uh, you think it's going to go right through their brain and um, you know it goes uh, it that follows the skull around to the back and it's sitting right under the skin you know counter to that I've seen a you know 0 point177 BB in the head of a teenager you know uh, or, or I'm sorry pellet uh, in the brain of a teenager that that child died Jesus. you know and
0: an air rifle so
1: Yeah, an air rifle. I mean, some of those, you know, modern air rifles have uh, some amazing capacity. And Mm -hmm. uh, some of those projectiles travel at near high velocity. And some of them, if you look at the really expensive ones, which I'd love to have one. um, But if you look at some of the really expensive air rifles, I mean, some of those rounds are 22 caliber rounds or, you know, 36. I mean, they're they're big. And they, you know, will carry uh, at a certain distance, they will carry the same punch you know, there are people that go boar hunting uh, with some of the modern air rifles out there.
0: Yeah. I'm on, and, uh, I'm on a website right now with RWS uh, air rifles. Uh, that was always like the standard, right? The German standard, uh, R- yeah, RWS. Yeah. And uh, there's one here that's doing 1200 feet per second, you know, and that's with the 177. And then there are other ones here that are 22 caliber that are doing a thousand, which, yeah, I mean, that's at the level of a 22 subsonic, <laughs> you yeah. know, like, so- rimfire round.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. So the 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 question that that, that Instagram uh, person asked, it's an it's a spectacular question with a very complex answer. You know, I mean it can depend on, you know, what kind of clothing you have. Um, what kind of, you know, what kind of body habitus you have. What kind of, you know, what's the environment? What type of round is it? You know, is it a plus P round? Is it not a plus P round? Is it a hollow point round? Is it not? You know, is it, you know, is it a personal defense round? Hornady makes, you know, some amazing personal defense rounds that, you know, they're not going to have a problem going through some things, even though they're nine millimeter or even though they're 380. you know, my, I have a a Glock 42. That's my wife's, it's it's not mine. I don't have it. My wife has it, but you know, there's some really quality personal defense rounds that I think are very equal to. Uh, anything. You know, I I think about that, you know, when you live in Maine, people wear a lot of heavy clothing in the wintertime. And, you know, if somebody is, you know, or if you're in any cold climate, you got to think about that when you're, when you're purchasing around for personal defense, you know, just what I thought. But in in regards to injury, you know, the classically, the lower velocity, the handgun rounds, when they are, um, you know, the solid tip handgun round, is um going to penetrate whereas the hollow point is going to penetrate mushroom out and do damage and then the high velocity rounds will not only penetrate but they transfer kinetic energy and there is a blast effect around it
0: Jeez, yeah it's it, so it's pretty much anything goes but generally speaking yeah, use, a, the, use a rifle if you want to put a hurt on yeah the,
1: the very worst injury i've ever seen was a hunting uh, was a thirty odd six, uh, a guy thought that it was a deer, didn't identify his target, and shot another individual right through, uh, right through the abdomen from side to side. And when he got to the, when he got to me, he had intestine. I mean, there was clearly blast injury. He had intestines sticking out of one side. It Was a giant hole on one side with you know some blown out intestines hanging out, and um, you know a smaller hole on the other side. And he was. Uh, you know, fortunately, I got him to the operating room in time, and then you know we were able to do a damage control procedure. Um, there were numerous trips back and forth to the operating room over the ensuing few days. Um, you know, and uh, the guy survived and is a great guy. Still, you know, occasionally talk to him to this day.
0: This next question, we'll make this one the last one because we'll get to some specifics, and uh, you know, we'll I want to you know wrap this up on a on a high note. So this is the last question from Instagram. Best. Oh, this one comes from the Ben Smith, the Ben Smith, or the Ben Smith. I'm sorry, T H E E. Best meds for backcountry pain and illness management on 18 to 30 day trips.
1: Um. Well, you, you know, unless you're a physician um, or you have access to non-prescription or to prescription pain medication. I would say, you know, if, if you're just a standard person and you, you know, you want to <clears throat> take pain medicine with you, um, you have really three options. Tylenol, um, four options, really. Tylenol, aspirin, which I do not recommend aspirin, um, Motrin, or naproxen. Um, I would say, in my opinion, you're The top three are going to be Tylenol, Motrin, and Naproxen. Um, I would say be careful with the Naproxen. That's also called Aleve is the -the over-the-counter name. Um, Some people have, and you'd never know it until you take it. Uh, I'm one of those people. I take Aleve and I throw up all day. Um, It can be a little rough on the stomach. I can take Motrin without a problem. Um, You want to be careful when you're taking Motrin more than you know, three or four times a day. Um, the, the regular over-the-counter dose is two 200 milligram tablets every six to eight hours. Um, prescription doses are, you know, 800 milligrams every six to eight hours. And really, you're only limited when you take Motrin by, you know, the, the fact that you can you can hurt your stomach lining with it. So when you take it, you should take it with something to eat. Tylenol you want to make sure you do not go over four grams of Tylenol in one day so Tylenol you can take every six every six hours. Um, You can take up to one gram of Tylenol every six hours, but you should not, and I would really caution people do not exceed four grams of Tylenol in a day do not combine that with any alcoholic beverages because it actually makes it more susceptible to causing you liver damage. Really? very yeah, very occasionally we will see people who um, inadvertently take too much tylenol because there are ty- there's kind of Tylenol hidden in some things. Um, if you use things, there's there's two companies you know having trade excuse me trained in the South. There's two companies that make these powders that you can just put under your tongue. Um, They have caffeine, uh, Tylenol, aspirin, um, and they may have something else in them. I I can't really remember, but one's called BC Powder and one's called Goody Powder. Now, I will tell you, they are amazing for dealing with your hangover. So if um, (laughs) – My shameless plug for BC and goody powders, if you have a hangover, they are spectacular. They do have some caffeine in them. Um, You're going to feel better. You know, again, you want to stay hydrated with all these things, but, you know, they don't tell you that, or it's not, they don't tell you, but it's not clear unless you read the ingredients of everything that there's also Tylenol in them. So people have gotten into trouble with their liver by taking Tylenol and some of these things simultaneously where there's kind of like some sneaky Tylenol in there. So you just gotta be careful. It's really important, um, but I would say if you're going somewhere for 30 days, you know, you really have to think about, you know, what you are allowed to have, um, you know, and as a civilian and non-physician, you know, and, and even as a physician, I, I do not carry ever uh, narcotics with me. I don't recommend that people travel with narcotics unless you are prescribed them for some chronic pain condition. Um, you know, it's, it's just, you're, you're asking for trouble um doing that, you know somebody, you know it's it's not a pretty world out there, and you know there are people out there that are very interested in narcotics, and if they find out you have them, uh, they're gonna want to take them.
0: And can you expand on the aspirin warning?
1: Yeah, so um, aspirin uh, irreversibly inhibits your platelets, um, and it's great if you're um, not going to cut yourself or anything like that. It's spectacular to keep with you a baby aspirin if you, are of the age where you could have uh, a a heart attack. Um, If you feel like somebody is in that age or in that risk group, I would recommend carrying a baby aspirin with you. It's one of the things, one of the very few things, one of the things that we can do that we know improves survival. Um, And it is really important um, to have with you you if that is a risk. And again, you have to, you know, when you're going somewhere need to consider you know your mission, your location, and you know the type of people and your risk stratification. So how, how old are you or how old are the people in your group? Do they have medical histories consistent with things that you need to, to add or subtract from your med kit? Um, or do they have surgical histories consistent with things that you need to add or subtract from your med kit? What are their medications? you know and, and that kind of thing. And, and that you know you need to consider what kind of environment are you going to? Are you going to an austere environment? You know, what's its location? What's your time to definitive care? How do you contact that definitive care? And what do you need to carry with you? You know, what? what's the training of the people in the group with you? Is somebody trained as a first responder? Is somebody a paramedic? Is somebody a nurse? Are they a physician? And remember, just because somebody is a physician does not mean in any way, shape, or form that they have knowledge of, um, you know, how to care for somebody in an austere environment. You know, most of us, you know, even those of us that are surgeons, um, you know, I spend all of my day in an operating room where people kind of have everything there, the instant that I ask for it. And so, you know, understanding that uh, and understanding what your capabilities are, even if you're a physician is really important, you know, I mean, I, I have other training, so I, you know, I feel very comfortable. Um, But if you are in an austere situation, you think, all right, we're covered because I got a doctor with me and they're a, you know, rheumatologist or a neurologist and they don't have the interest in that, they're not going to be any more useful than, you know, the EMT or the first
0: responder. You know, you hit up on something right there that uh, Doc Jones, our our medic, our army medic who does a lot of our classes out here. He and I were recently in Las Vegas doing some training and we were just BSing about Survival community, and then we were BSing about the medical community. And he said that more so in the medical community than survival, there's always someone who's in the peanut gallery that just wants to like one up right? There's always a one upper and he doesn't understand why in the medical community, instead of saying like, Hey, look, we're all working towards this common goal. Like, Hey, that's a great idea. Like people are slow to compliment. They don't want to support. If anything, the medical community just wants to like knock each other down. And, and whether that's like pre hospital care, hospital care, or, you know, Oh, EMT versus paramedic or, you know, MD versus surgeon, like he said, that there's just so much like animosity in the medical clinic or medical, medical field. Do you have any insight? Like, why is that? Like, why, why, <laughs> why, why do folks that want to help people, why are they so quick to like knock each other down?
1: Oh, it, this is, this is very straightforward. It's a super easy question to, to answer. Okay. Especially, so I'll just talk about surgeons. If you ask any surgeon who the, the best three surgeons they know are, they're going to have trouble thinking of the names of the other two. (laughs) So, you know, it's, you know, we're a very, we're trained in an environment. And when you come through your training, we spend a lot of time being, and this isn't a bad thing. We spend a lot of time being very critical. You know, surgeons spend time every week in training, critiquing what we have done, both what we have done as individuals and what other people in our training programs have done so there's this you know there's this kind of mentality um you know that can grow that that's not really conducive to forwarding learning and instead of you know in in my lifetime instead of doing that i've said you know let me just give away all of my knowledge as much as i can and um you know and let me learn from different folks i mean I, i there are just some amazing paramedics out there um who who are I would I would have take care of me in a heartbeat. Who are incredibly intelligent, um, who have a much better knowledge of this skill set than ninety nine point nine percent of physicians. Now I will say that you know some emergency physicians are also very good with this kind of thing, but you got to remember they're used to being in an emergency room. So unless they have you know uh, some wilderness medicine training or some other training, uh, either from the military or Um, just, you know, either as previous paramedics or things like that, they're used to being in an emergency room. So, you know, we really need to, you know, the the reality is that, yeah, you're going to deal with people like that online all the time. And I kind of, you know, laugh when, when somebody, you know, you just, they they do it, I'd ignore it. Um, And, you know, when people are critical in that way, it's just because they feel discomfort and they, they probably don't know what they're talking about and, you know, they're, they're trying to feel better about their lack of knowledge in a given area. My
0: favorite expression is, uh, haters will see you walk on water and say, it's because you can't swim, (laughs) you know?
1: Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's not helpful. You know, they, they may say, okay, well, I've, I've tried this. What do you, you know, personally I'd say, okay, that hasn't worked for me and this is what I've done. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I I think that develops a conversation, where you you know where where you can everybody can learn from one another rather than you know I'm the doctor you're not the doctor cuz that that's just I don't even like to I don't even let people in my hospital I don't go by doctor right you know I'm just Ian and you know I've been on the streets I've been a medic I've been a firefighter and I've I've done all these jobs and I know how amazingly important and intelligent this group of people is and doctors are not smarter than everybody else It's just a different job. And that's the reality of it.
0: And and, you know, that's why I've always appreciated you as a friend is that you, you're just straightforward. You're like, look, I've had training in this, but I don't know everything. And it was always funny when, when Marty would say something like about the aspirin, for example, and people in the, in the, the the crowd would be like, really, really? And you'd be like, look, he's spot on, like a hundred percent. And especially with like the edible and medicinal plants, he'd bring up something and you'd be like, how the hell do you know this? You know, but Marty just applied himself. He was self-trained with, with a lot of that plant knowledge. But uh, the only thing separating him, I guess, from like a natural pathic doctor was that he didn't have a degree, you know, he, but he knew what the the chemicals were in certain plants. And I mean, very knowledgeable dude.
1: Yeah. Marty was, Marty had this amazing fund of knowledge about, you know, edibles and medicinal plants that, that I was always in awe of. And, you know, I used to, you know, uh, until Marty passed, you know, Marty would always respond. I would take a picture of something. And I'd go, what the hell is this, Marty? And, and he would text me back, you know, sometimes within a second, sometimes it would be like four hours later, depending on, you know, what Marty was doing. And, but he would always respond to that. And he was amazing, you know, and, and the biggest compliment in my life, because um, Marty hated doctors.
0: And <laughs> Yeah, you're spot on with that one.
1: <laughs> but, but yeah, he did not. Marty did not go to the doctor. But every now and again, Marty would call me and go, hey, this is what's going on. What do you think? And, and because I knew how much Marty did not like doctors, I always took that as one of my best compliments as a physician. That Here's this guy who just has very little trust in the medical system. And, you know, he's willing to reach out to me, even though I'm, you know, 458 miles away. You know, he'll call me and say, what do you think? And um, yeah, we had some. There were some very funny questions around that that Kevin knows about that I'm not going to bring yeah, up. We can't. We can't forum. do that. Um, but he was he was just a really special guy that had an immense fund of knowledge, and that's not limited to Marty. I mean, there are EMS providers. The Six Hour Academy has, you know, people that are you know former medics and you know special operations medics and things like that. That just you know, I'd rather have them in an austere situation than some of the best surgeons in this country, myself
0: included. You know, we're kind of running long on this one, but that's okay because there's so much cool info and good info that people need to hear. And I I haven't decided how I wanna wrap this up. Either I just wanna talk about like injuries to the hand or injuries to the feet, injuries to the head, or if I just wanna do like a rapid fire with you, like, okay, common injuries, what do you do? Or I'm gonna leave this one up to you. Well, to so give like I, I rapid thought, fire answers.
1: Yeah, I thought about this, and and I'll, let's do some rapid fire. But I actually made a list of things I thought were really important.
0: <laughs> All right, fire away. I'm um, gonna let you go.
1: Because I just, you know, when we talked, and you said don't prepare anything, I said I just couldn't do it. Yeah, so, that's not
0: that's not you. I had a feeling you were gonna be like, I'm gonna have a few notes because I know you. You're, I, you're that person that I, doesn't want to screw up.
1: I did. I, I wrote down a couple of things that I think were important, and and mostly because I think a lot of what people, I get so irritated. By these medical kits that are sold and people show up and they want to show me their medical kit. And and there are some really amazing medical kits out there with stuff in it that nobody knows how to use except for me, but they buy it and they bring it with them. And I always say, well, what what are you going to do with it? Have you ever used this? Do you know what to do with this? You know, do you know how to manage these things? Have you ever practiced on a mannequin or on a pig or on a, you know, in a live, you know, and, and most people will say no. So, when you think about personal or, or group med- medical kits, so there's, there's two different things where I break it down. Is it a personal med kit or an IFAC, the individual first aid kit, and a group medical kit, which is you know, kind of more for a, a, whatever number of people are in your mission or your trip or your adventure, whatever you have. You know, an IFAC, the individual first aid kit, you got to remember is for the individual that's carrying it. That's for you. That's for other people to use on you. The group med kit is for the group of people. So you got to think about, you know, how many people, how many people could be injured, you know, what kind of injuries. So when it comes to stuff like that, there's a couple of things I think about mission. So what, what is the purpose of your trip? Are you going rock climbing? Are you going to a shooting event? Are you going, um, Is this, you know, is this a military mission? Is this a police mission? Is this a family trip? Is this, and and so that's, these are the kind of things that are germane to all of these. You got to think about your location. Where is your location? Are you going to be in a very remote area? Are you going to a national park where there's a ranger service? Do you have cell service? Do you not have cell service? Do you have a contact ability? Do you have a spot or any of the other GPS, emergency location devices. What's your time to definitive care? So, you know, are, are you going overseas, you know, to an austere area? Are you going somewhere where definitive care ain't really definitive care? You know, so what are the local resources? What are the regional resources? What are the national resources of that area? I mean, if you're going right now to Afghanistan, uh, there ain't nothing. You know, so or if you're going to more austere areas in the world, you know, you're going to be dependent on um, the minimal care that's there. And you got to make sure you have some cash in your pocket to pay for it. Um, And you're going to have to find out, you know, if I need to get out of here, how do I medevac? How do I get that done? And what's that going to cost? So, you know, that's something really important. What's your risk? Is your risk medical? You know, are you going somewhere where you have um, malaria, tropical diseases? Um, you know, things like, um, like fever, fever. Yeah. You know, travelers' diarrhea, things like that. Um, you know, or is your risk trauma? Is the majority of your risk trauma? Are you going rock climbing where you're going to fall? You're going to break an arm. You're going to break a leg. You know, are you you know going to a shooting range where? You could get hit by a ricochet. You could, you know, are you, you know, those are the kind of things that you want to think about. Training, you know, what's your training? Do you have training in how to put on a tourniquet? Have you put on a tourniquet? You know, let me put it on myself and see how to do it. Can I do it under duress? You know, turn, crank your stereo up real loud and have somebody throw pieces of paper at you while you put a tourniquet on. That's, that's minimal duress whatsoever. It's all man-made. But you got to do it, you know, in a bad And that'll be the least of your worries if you got to put it on for real. You know, do you have basic training? Do you have intermediate training? Do you have advanced training? What are the people in your group? What's the health status of your team? You know, and, or your journey members, your adventure members. You know, you, are you traveling with little ones? You know, you can't have the same dose of Tylenol for a six-year-old that you do for a 40-year-old you know, how old are they? You know, do you have any elderly folks with you? Do you have people, you know, with medical problems? Do they take medication every day? Do they have those? What's their medical history? What's their surgical history? And then, you know, there's, there's some interesting things that I saw out there over the past couple of days, I thought about this podcast. And it was funny, because I was discussing this podcast with um, one of the other surgeons in my group as we were, you know, we're operating the other day, and we're just kind of enjoying our conversation and doing this case. And we were talking about, he goes, you know what popped up on my Instagram feed was these prescription medical kits. So, and I I actually researched this. So you can Google it there's you know, just, you know, prescription uh, med kits. And you'll get these companies where you have, you kind of describe what you're doing. um, You describe what your medications are and they will actually prescribe to you um, medications for whatever, you know, say you're going to uh, an area where there's malarial.
0: Damn, there's definitely malaria. not cheap, are they?
1: No, they're not oh they're not cheap. They're, they're not cheap at all. Um, you know, it, but the interesting thing is, uh, for those of you that don't know, if you have uh, a health savings account or a flexible spending account, it's all those are all covered by it because um, it's prescription stuff. Um, the reality is is that, you know, you, you see all these things, that, that are pre kind of, you know, uh, their TV dinners, you know, you can make your own and most hospitals will have an infectious of, of any decent size will have an infectious disease doctor that runs a travel clinic. I know my facility, even here in Maine, we have this spectacular infectious disease doctor and they run a travel clinic. So if you're going to go to Africa or if you're going to go to Asia, or if you're going to go to South America, they will look at what you need. You can tell them what you're worried about, and um, they will prescribe that to you. And you know, you just get that stuff and take it with you. You know, and, and so what I, yeah, you know, what I tell people is before you buy one of these TV dinner things, think about what you need. You know, um, and the basics are like depends on your mission. So in my day-to-day individual first aid kit, I have a tourniquet. I have combat gauze and I have a pair of scissors, you know, and I will tell you that's what I carry with me um, in my briefcase. Now, I I augment that a little bit within my car. There's, you know, there's a I have this brass tool that you can do a quick tracheostomy with, Um, you know, I, I had a friend that carried that that had an experience with it probably 18 years ago and he swears by the thing. So I've always carried that, it, you know, it'll fit on a keychain or whatever. Um, if you've never done that before, don't buy it. <laughs> you're going to hurt yourself or you're going to hurt somebody else. So, so just don't do it. Um, you know, but that's, that's really the big combat gauze, you know, for me in my day-to-day carry um, in my briefcase, combat gauze and a tourniquet because everything else, you know, in my day-to-day life, there's gonna be an EMS provider that shows up with an ambulance and then I can either get on and help them or um, turn the kit, turn whatever it is over to them after I've dealt with it. And I will tell you, this is, the, the combat gauze, um, You know, is not something that I, I think a lot of emergency rooms have finally learned about it. But w- my first experience with combat gauze was one of my partners, I got called, I was on my way in to change over to me being the next guy on call my 24-hour call and the the guy that was leaving was um was uh, in the emergency room and they called me from the emergency room they said you know dr such and such needs your help right now he's literally standing on somebody's groin who was bleeding who had had a vascular surgery on their groin and i said okay i'm on my way so i zipped in i got my bag with me um and Uh, my partner has got two hands with all his weight pushing on this person's groin. There's still blood leaking out. And what they had was they had had a femoral artery repair that got infected and broke down. So they're bleeding directly from their femoral artery. Damn. Um, You know, worst case scenario, Uh, really bad place to put a tourniquet on. Just not, you know, it's right up in the groin. You're not going to get a tourniquet on it very well. So I, he's standing there. I take the stuff out, I take a quick peek at it, I shove him back on there. And I said to the nurse, in my bag, in this pocket, as first I said, do you have any combat gauze? And everybody in the room looked at me like I had nine heads. And I said, okay, that's a, that's a no. Um, so in my bag, and they're getting the operating room ready um, and we're getting blood together. I said, in my bag, there is a packet of combat gauze in this pocket right here. And this is what my, my IFAC looks like. It's got a big red cross on it. Um, I, I will shamelessly plug snake eater tactical. I buy theirs um, <laughs> in, in the hopes and I shamelessly plug these places in the hope that they'll send me something free one day. Um, but anyway, so they pulled that out. I packed it with combat gauze um, and the bleeding stopped. You know, with some pressure and combat gauze and we were able to completely stabilize the patient went up to the operating room got proximal and distal control uh, the vascular surgeon showed up and fixed the problem. So, you know, I mean, combat gauze is just amazing stuff I carry it with me wherever I go, um, you can pack it in and I can attest to the fact that you can stop the femoral artery from bleeding with combat gauze. Um, you know, when I go uh, on trips. Um, I carry that, um, some splinting stuff, uh, a SAM splint, um, some very basic medications for myself. My kids are all adult size now, so it's Tylenol, Motrin. Um, you know, Imodium uh, is over the counter and important to carry with you if you have some diarrhea. Though one of the things that you got to remember is uh, people get diarrhea for a reason, and some of the reasons for having diarrhea, you don't want to stop it. Uh, because it will cause more problems by stopping it than just letting it go. Um, electrolyte replacement solutions, oral hydration stuff, that's all good things to have with you. Um, ACE bandages are spectacular. You know the and I would say, just use regular gauze. Don't spend the money on this special um, coated gauze, the nonstick stuff, things like that. Um, if you're going to wrap somebody up, just wrap it and then the doctor will take it off somewhere else. If, you know, for little boo-boos and things like that, that stuff is great. And if you want to carry it with you, great. Um, don't carry hydrogen peroxide with you because it goes bad over time and it's not very useful. Um, you know, Neosporin, you know, again, little cuts and scrapes kind of stuff is really good. Um, and, and that's really the extent of it, but you really need to personalize that kit for what you're going to do uh, and where you're going to go. I'm always, you know, if somebody hits me on Instagram and says, I'm going here, this is a number of people that I'm going with. I will always respond to that and say, here's what I would take with me. Uh, as far as, you know, kind of stuff that you can buy in stores and things like that. Um, you know, there's plenty of good kits out there that you can make your own uh, You and you can buy the pre-made ones. As long as, you know, what I would say is if you buy something pre-made, open it up, Take everything out, put everything back in, so that you know what's in there.
0: You know, <clears throat> I feel like we need to do a part two of this at some point. Um, there, there's just too much, you know. And I know that people are gonna be like, "Whoa, but why, Kevin? Why did Kevin cut it off so soon?" It's like, well, you know, I don't want people to miss out. I want to do a part two, um, but I want to end this one with like five quick questions because there's so much here, and I, I, I hope we can bring you on. For something else too, like my my creative juices are flowing here. I've been taking notes. I've been typing out notes left and right, messaging the guys over in North Carolina, like, "Hey, we got to get Dockey in on, on the book somewhere." Um, but I want to do five quick questions, uh, and then we'll call this one a call this one a show. I'm ready. All right, here we go. What do you say to a police officer that stops you? And I'm talking about you in particular as a doctor. Uh, like, if you're a cop. Uh, this is what you're going to hear. What do you say to a police officer when they stop you, when you are being called in for an emergency surgery?
1: Oh, so that's a great question. I've had that happen. Um, I, I, you know, I was, I was on route and they had um, I've had this happen two different times. One was I got pulled over for speeding and I was on my way to um, to literally save somebody's life. The other one was there was a crash and the road was blocked. And the victims from that crash were in the uh, emergency room. So, in both cases, I had my badge with me. I take out my badge. I said, "I am a surgeon." Um, I said, "Hey, I'm sorry. I definitely was speeding, sir. I apologize. This is where I was going. This is why I'm going there." Um, you know, could I, could I, could I please continue on so that I can take care of these people? Police officers are awesome people. They get that. And they want to be, you know, they want people to do well. They want people to be healthy. They don't want people to get hurt. I've never had somebody I've had. I had one guy when I was trying to get through that, uh, where they had the road shut down. He just said, follow me. And I stayed right behind him and and he got me to work. Um, so, you know, we have, we have a great police community in this area. I've never had an issue with that.
0: Okay. Second question. How much caffeine is too much caffeine?
1: Well, that's a good question. Um, You know, uh, it it depends upon how much you're taking simultaneously uh, and how much uh, or throughout the day, whether you're spacing it out. So, you know, generally, if you start to feel uncomfortable, sweaty and like your heart's beating too fast, that's probably too much. Um, If you're doing okay, that's fine. You know, what I would caution people about are these energy drinks. Um, because I've had a couple of friends in residency um, go into atrial fibrillation from pounding these energy drinks all the time. Um, you know, I, you know, I'm 50. So I'm down to, you know, my wife is uh, Puerto Rican, and she makes a cup of coffee that'll curl your hair. So I have one of those in the morning, and that's it for me. And I'm, I'm good with that. Uh, we do know that coffee is good for you, you know, and i think that um you know people who drink three or four cups throughout the day it's fine as long as you don't feel bad you're doing okay
0: okay so we got question about a cop question about coffee this next question has to do with heat exhaustion because we're here in utah uh, today when i walked in it was cold and that was 82 degrees it's been triple digits lately Uh, what is your course of action if you suspect someone to be a heat casualty?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, you think when you live in Maine, you don't see that very often. We actually do because we'll, we'll get a week of really hot weather and we don't have, you know, because we're so cool most of the time there's, we have, we like, I don't have, uh, central air conditioning, um, So we do see that, um, you know, the first thing that you want to do is cool that person or put them in a cool environment or in a cooler environment. So if you have access to a vehicle or someplace with air conditioning, that's step one. Uh, Step two, you know, if if they are beginning to show signs of heat exhaustion, uh, you really want to cool them as quickly as possible. So ice packs, cold packs, under the arms, uh, you know, where the arteries are, so neck, arms, uh, and then you want to rehydrate them. You know, so if you can, IV fluids uh, are important. Um, you know, when you get to places of definitive care, um, we use things uh, called heating and cooling blankets or pads that come in contact with the skin so that you have conductive, the ability to you know conduct heat directly to the skin rather than convection, which is you know to put somebody in a cool environment. Um, so, you know, but the more you can put on them, the better you'll do with conduction rather than putting them in a cooled environment. Although anything is better than nothing.
0: Outstanding. Uh, question <clears throat> number four. Cuts to the finger. Uh, you see it frequently in the bushcraft circle. Uh, guys will puncture the palm of their hand or they will slice a finger. You find someone with a sliced finger. What do you do?
1: Yeah, great question. Um you know, <laughs> sharpening knives, um, I would say I've cut my fingers plenty of times, which when you're a surgeon is not fun because, you know, I wash my hands with stuff and I use that alcohol foam probably 75 times a day. So if you have even the smallest cut, you you feel it. Um, you know, I, I think if you, you know, it, it depends. There are some things that are going to need sutures. Um, there are some that are not. Uh, joint surfaces can be exceedingly painful. Um, if you are down to where you see bone, uh, you need to, you know, get that taken care of. Um, if you have lost function in that digit, in other words, you can't bend or flex or extend, uh, that finger, or you, you know, like it's not working properly again, you know, splint it in its position, stop the bleeding with pressure and, you know, go to the emergency room or go, you know, to seek some emergency care. Um, you know, little cuts and stuff. You know, I'm, I'm pretty brave. Uh, I'm certainly not suturing myself in the field. Uh, that's, that's a little bit uh, much. I have sutured other people in the field or in austere conditions when I know that you know, there's going to be a bunch of people out there with knives doing bushcraft stuff. I do carry equipment with me to take care of that. Um, you know, but again, you have to think about how many times can you use it? How many of those kits do you carry with you? You know, so you got to tell people be responsible because only one person's getting stitched if they need it. Um, you know, So you got to think about that. And you know, as long as if it's a little cut that you can you know, close easily uh, with a bandage, that's fine.
0: All right. Last question. Uh, <clears throat> if you do not have access to a doctor and you just have a library uh, of books, no internet off grid, is there a book that you recommend for the average person to have in their library that can address you know, medical treatment, diagnosis, and things like that?
1: Well, that's a, that's a good one. So, I've, been, I've been
0: trying to think of a question to stump you, brother. Like, like, I know it's hard, uh, but I figured this one might.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a good one. So I, I think the vast majority of people will be best served with the first responder handbook. Um, or, you know, one of the Brady, uh, Brady, you know, EMT handbook and things like that. I think if you read that, you'll be knowledgeable, or you may be knowledgeable, but not experienced. Um, So, you know, again, training is important. Um, You know, those books can provide you with knowledge, but they're not going to provide you with experience, and they're not going to provide you with, you know, interaction with a professional. Um, So, You know, I I think you can read those things. I've read those things in in my life. I continue to read all of those things. If you look back um, in one of the Brady uh, paramedic manuals uh, from the early 90s, late 80s, you can see pictures of a 17-year-old Dr. Wright in there um, that are exceedingly (laughs) embarrassing. Um, But uh, they certainly will Tell you the finer points of splinting and, you know, kind of how to do it, when to do it, Um, and and you'll get that basic knowledge, uh, but you won't have experience. Now, the the beauty of today is you can YouTube all of this stuff. You just got to be careful who you look at and what you use. So, you know, again, if it's by a professional or a professional organization, I think it's valuable to look at Um, if it is, you know. Um, someone who so, you know it's, it's the hey y'all watch this crowd um, that's probably not very valuable um, it may be valuable in the sense of like this is probably what you shouldn't do um, you know so I think there's an immense uh, immense amount of information out there the problem is sifting through it and finding out what's good and what's bad so you know again you can get some basic knowledge from the first responder handbook from you know paramedic uh, textbooks and things like that, um, wilderness uh, wilderness medicine textbooks. I think for things like that are also really good. Um, there's a wilderness EMT textbook that uh, you know again I think is very valuable. Um, so I, I think those are the kind of things you can look at. But again, nothing supplements real live training with people who have experience. And you know you can you can look in all the books you want to. You know, and I'll give you an example um, you know when, when we were when we were all you know 12 years old we probably read a lot of books that had sex in them <laughs> but it's certainly not the same as the real thing
0: yeah the I don't recall any of the articles any of those magazines that I might have stumbled across uh, I never had of course no one ever had them they were always someone someone else that they just they left those magazines at your house underneath the bed you know what I mean I'm like those weren't mine. <laughs>
1: I, that's, I'm just going based on stories that you've told. Yeah, me of, yeah, of course, of that's course. Right.
0: You know, we don't want to talk about the sock that doesn't bend anymore. Um, yeah. All right, So <laughs> Jesus, I can't believe we we went there, um, guys. Here, here's the story with Ian. Uh, Doc Ian is a guy that I trust immensely. Um, I've called him a bunch of times, asking him about this, that, and the other thing. Uh, you got to find a good medical doctor, uh, a medical professional that you can keep in your inner circle. You know, fieldcraft talks about tribe. And you'll hear the term tribe often. Well, in every single tribe, there's always a medicine man. And sometimes those medicine men uh, or medicine women, they used a lot of like folklore and they used a lot of, uh, you know, placebos. And it was more in your mind than anything else. Well, you can't deny modern medicine, how incredible it is. So if you can find someone like a Doc Ian that is there when you when you make the phone call that will they'll pick up, that's an awesome person to have. and. And every once in a while they'll entertain you too, you know, laughter is good medicine as my dad would always say. Um, now Ian, is there a way that people could reach you where it's not going to bug the hell out of you if they have a question, (laughs) like one that you'd actually say like, yeah, I'll reply to you. Um, and maybe, um, go ahead.
1: You know, my, my Instagram account, uh, which you can get, uh, I think if you, I, I follow uh, Fieldcraft survival and I also follow, um, Kevin, um, you can find me that way. Um, I think that's, that's a real easy way for me to do it. Um, you know, I am really, you know, if, if you find me on Facebook, great. Uh, I really only use Facebook for, uh, a lot of the medical forums that I belong to with other surgeons. So I really don't respond to that other than, you know, the things that I do with other surgeons. Um, Instagram is really good for me. I think that's the way to do it. Um, and certainly I look forward to, um, some more experiences and, and having these conversations with, with you, Kevin, um, I'm, I'm happy to come back and we can, we can even drill down on very specific topics.
0: Hog hunting.
1: Um, My experience with those. Yeah. Oh my God. I I definitely want to go this year. (laughs) Um, But I, I, you know, there are some, there's some really, there's some stuff, you know, if people want help putting together their, their personal kits, I'm, I'm happy to do that. Um, You know, I, and I'll answer just about any question, anytime. Um, so, you know, I I may not be super fast. I do, you know, I do take care of patients and, um, you know, I'm, I'm medical director of a bunch of things. I'm president of the medical staff and that kind of thing. So I I don't necessarily check my Instagram account every day. Um, but I'm always willing to help. I'm here. Uh, you know, we have a great community of paramedics, first responders, I think, you know, if you look out there at things like North American Rescue, which is on Instagram, um, they're really, you know, it's a good one to follow. Um, you know, there's just there's, there's some really good stuff out there. Um, and, you know, I'm happy to help people find it. I'm happy to give advice. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here for that community. And Fieldcraft Survival is, you know, VAU has always been really good to me. Um, yeah, I will. You know, again, shamelessly plug the Sig Sauer Academy. I live two hours from there. I've been to a ton of their courses. It's an amazing group of professionals that uh, share the knowledge in the same way that I try to share my knowledge. Um, and I'm just, you know, it, it's it's a great place. Um, and I, I look forward to uh, talking again. And I hope that I can uh, shed some light on on anything uh, that you want to talk about and and continue to be a service to you know, my local community and and the national community in the same way that I always have been.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much, Doc. All right, guys, this has been the Fieldcrafts for All podcast. This is Kevin Estella. Thanks for listening.